Nice to be with you all. Uh, your, uh, your choice of hymns tonight was excellent. And uh, good singing, and uh, uh, your piano player is very, very mediocre, though. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, uh, sister knows how to play the piano. Well, well done, sister. Um, we just lost our piano player. She moved out to Iowa. Uh, so I'm piano envy, envious or whatever, but uh, good stuff. Uh, want to... Uh, Thank you for the time yesterday we had to talk about Believer's Stewardship Services and Ministry, uh, myself and uh, Brother Ken Bradley there in the one, two, three, fourth row there uh, are involved with, um, and I won't uh, belabor too much about that now other than just to say that we help folks, uh, Christians, set up their wills and uh, help them with plan giving, but if you don't have a will, uh, you need to get one because, uh, you know, as we say, uh, if you don't have a will of your own choosing, the state of California certainly does. And something tells me the state of California is not going to remember the Lord's work in their will. And we want to encourage believers to just to remember at least some portion of the Lord's work in their will. Uh, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. And I'm going to tell you about another ministry that I'm involved with because I just seem to be involved with every ministry that comes along the pike. But uh, no, uh, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for Shiloh. And uh, Father, we just pray as we think about uh, the fact that you sent your son to step into human history. And uh, Father, we just rejoice in a Savior that did not sit on the sidelines, but carried forth your plan of salvation, even though it meant his terribly ignoble death. So Father, we rejoice in a Savior such as this, and we thank you, Father, for the abundant evidence that's found in the world of archaeology that shows that you have indeed interacted in history and that your word, the Bible, is accurate and it is a historical book. So we pray that you'd give us understanding tonight as we look at these things. And again, we thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, I'm on the number of boards, and one of them that I'm on is this thing called the Associates for Biblical Research. Now, I'm going to venture to say that not a whole lot of you have heard of this ministry. Anybody in this room ever heard of this ministry? Okay, well, um, that's okay. It's not exactly a name that rolls off the tongue, Associates for Biblical Research, but they do conduct the largest archaeological digs in the world. They are an organization that is a uh, collection of a Bible-believing Christian archaeologists. And there are a number of them. You might be surprised, but do you know that the entire field of archaeology is owing to Christians? In the 1830s and 1840s, the Ottoman Turkish Empire opened up the Holy Land to the British, to the Canadians, and to the Americans. Now, it's not that the Ottoman Turkish Empire was very interested in uh, advancing the Bible. They were very interested in British pounds and U.S. dollars. And they knew that tourists would come from the West if they opened up the Holy Land uh, for tourist traffic. So the Ottoman Turks allowed the land of Judea to be opened up to uh, the West. And in so doing, Britain followed by the Americans, started to send Bible teachers over to Israel. 
And one of the things that was very difficult for the Bible teachers that first arrived was where did this thing take place? Sure, everybody knew where Jerusalem was, but there are thousands of other places mentioned in the Bible, and there was no sign saying that the city of Ai was here, or that this took place here. This is where Elijah, you know, all those type of things. Those things needed to be found out. There were some historical references, uh, but there was an awful lot that we didn't know. So Bible teachers in the 1830s and 1840s went into the Holy Land and they had to start to find things. And they developed what became the field of archaeology. Uh, if I had an internet connection here, I'd go to the about.com website and we'd type in archaeology. And one of the first things that would be said is the field of archaeology is owing to Bible teachers. Uh, Bible teachers trying to find out where things belong. Uh, where things took place, because there was no roadmap saying this event took place here. So it's kind of neat. And uh, one of the interesting things that has uh, occurred uh, in history is the fellow who is regarded as the father of archaeology is a Scotsman by the name of William Ramsey. William Ramsey was a complete skeptic of the Bible. And he was, uh, really gave birth to the whole field of antiquities study at Oxford University, if I recall right. But he was challenged to show that the Bible was essentially a collection of second century documents, at least the New Testament, and that it wasn't really historical. So he goes over to the land of the Bible, he goes over to Greece, he goes over to what would become Turkey, and he starts to look for things, chiefly in the book of Acts, but also in the Gospel of Luke. And by the time he was done studying it, 10 years he spent studying these places that are mentioned in Acts and Luke's, he said, this book is the most accurate work of antiquity that there is. Not only did he say that, he said that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a, and I quote, incontrovertible fact of history. He was so convinced of the trustworthiness of scripture that he became, guess what, a Bible-believing Christian born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the father of archaeology. Uh, so anyway, I want to talk to you about some of the things that are going on in the field of archaeology right now. Uh, uh, I'm on the board of this thing, and uh, just to give you a sense of how rapidly this is developing, just to encourage your faith, um, we're fairly certain that there are thousands of artifacts sitting in a museum in Istanbul, sitting in the British Museum in London, sitting in France, sitting even in New York, there are thousands of artifacts and scrolls that we've never gotten around to translating. Who knows the amount of evidence that may be, that may be in our museums that show the historicity of the Bible, but the ones we have translated and we've translated or found artifacts um, numbering in the thousands, not a one of which has ever disproven the Bible. In fact, they overwhelmingly confirm the scripture. And it's only as our technology gets better and it's only as our understanding gets better that we start to really realize how much we have actually already had that bears out the historicity of the Bible. So let me give you a great example. This is a tablet that was found in the Sinai Peninsula. It was found by Hilder, Hilda and William Mathers, Matthew uh, Petrie, Flinders Petrie. 
Um, you've probably not heard that name, but they were assembly folk. Uh, they were also archaeologists, early archaeologists, and they're digging around in the uh, Sinai Peninsula. They're digging at four places, but one of the biggest places is this place called Sarabet el Qadim. They find 16 different slabs of stone that seem to have writing on it. And you look at this and say, I don't see any writing. Well, look at this along the side, and let me give you a little bit different depiction of it. This is what they noted in their, uh, in their charts, that there was a strange form of writing that seemed to be on these slabs. There was about 16 of them, and it was a form of what we seem to think in 1905 may have been a very, very early form of Hebrew. But nobody knew how to translate this thing. It's like what they would come to call Paleo-Hebrew. Very, very early form of Hebrew. Now, the interesting thing about these slabs, and we know this based off of the pottery that was found around this, that the pottery, based off of how we've dated it, seems to put these slabs around the 1480s BC. Now, uh, if you were here yesterday, I mentioned the date of the Exodus, according to archaeology, according to your Bible, and according to 1 Kings chapter 6. We know that the Exodus, the departure from Egypt, took place under Moses in the year 1446 B.C. That's pretty much not debated at this point, at least by those who have a high view of Scripture. Uh, part of the reason for that is 1 Kings 6 verse 1 says, 480 years after the children of Israel left Egypt, the foundation of the temple was laid. We're certain the foundation of the temple was laid in 966 B.C. Go 480 years earlier, that's 1446 B.C. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend all night talking about numbers to you. I just want you to know, understand that archaeologists, they're concerned about these things. This slab seemed to be dated. You can't carbon date the slab. You've got to look at the writing style and you've got to look at the pottery that's found around it. But seemed to put the writing of the slabs about 40 years before the parting of the Red Sea and the departing of, from Egypt. It's only been, well, let's see if I've got this right. It was only two years ago that we finally cracked the code. We've had these, tab, these slabs for 100 plus years, and yet we never knew what they said. Well, now we know what they say because we found some other things and we found some writings that give us an indication of how to understand what this thing is that we now know is to be Paleo-Hebrew. And the slab is a reference to some fella who is a slave who oversees the diggers, and he's responsible for the entire quarry. He's an Israelite, and his name is Ahissamach. He's said to be the, the, one, the slave who's in charge of the diggers. And there's a number of things we found out about this fella. Um, this was only uh, uncovered by a guy named Doug Petrovich. He was the one who really cracked the code back in 2016 and 2017. Now, why this is important is this. In the Bible, it talks about those who were tasked with making the tabernacle. And it mentions two fellows. It mentions Bezalel, the son of Uri, who's from the tribe of Judah. And it also mentions Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. Oh, and I forgot to mention something. There's clearly artifacts in this particular quarry where they're digging that seem to be related to slaves who are from the tribe of Dan. 
Now, is it 100% conclusive proof that the Ahisamach, uh, who is the father of the guy who's going to work on the ark, is the same one that's mentioned in the slab? It's not 100% certain, but there's probably some tie-in there. And something like that, you see, it's an inferential detail, a big deal. My faith's not going to stand. Archaeologists love this stuff because even in the little minute things, the Bible seems to be spot-on accurate. And of course, it is. Um, so, with that as a backdrop, and, and you know, we're always talking about uh, archaeologists try to get the British Museum to go through and look at the old scrolls that have been collected, and you you wonder, you, you just wonder what might be in these museums. Incidentally, it costs money. You got to get you got to get uh, uh, the British Museum to turn this stuff over to you, and then you got to get an expert and pay their time. But anyway, it's it's a it's a fun thing. You know, I'm not an archaeologist. What I do is I get all the briefings that are sent. Uh, the way archaeology works is somebody finds something, and they've got to put it out for peer review, and they'll put it out to different universities, different archaeology societies, and you get to see this stuff, and you read it, and then you critique it but you dare not publish it yet because the person who found it, it's their right to publish it. You're just critiquing it so that uh, um, you, know, you can help them in, their, in what they publish. Anyway, you wouldn't believe the things that have been found that are waiting to be published. It's exciting as all get out, and as technology gets better, more and more things get found. So with that as a backdrop, let me talk to you about this place. This is where the largest dig in the world was going on last year. If you had to guess, how many digs do you think are taking place in Israel each year? It's about 100. There are about 100 archaeological digs going on in Israel any given year. Never been that many in all of history. 100 archaeological digs going on. The biggest one, biggest one in Israel, biggest one in the world is at, at Shiloh. And I mentioned this to Brother Ken this morning. Uh, the Israelis pronounce everything wrong. You know, we pronounce it right in uh, America. They pronounce everything wrong. Obviously, this is Shiloh. You know what they call this? Shiloh. That's exactly right. They call it Shiloh. They, got the, they pronounce it Shiloh. Clearly, it's Shiloh. They're wrong in their own language. It's like David, right? David is the right way to pronounce uh, the guy's name who slew Goliath. You know what they say? You know this. David. They call him David. The arrogance of calling him David. It's David. And the worst one is who parted the Red Sea? Who did the Lord use to part the Red Sea? Yeah. Where do they get off saying Moshe? It's Moses, right? Well, this is Shiloh. It's Shiloh. Not, uh, they pronounce it Shiloh there. Um, incidentally, of those 100 digs, uh, more than 90 of them will only occur during the summer months. Why do you think it's during the summer? Why do you think you'd have a dig at the hottest time of the year with the sun beating down on you? Why would you have those digs taking place during the summer? What's that? It won't be a crowd. It has everything to do with students. It's American college kids, to be brutally honest with you. American college kids, British college kids, German college kids, Canadian college kids. Not only will they come and dig on your dig, they'll pay you to come dig on your dig. So you wonder what they're learning in school. It's free labor, and not only that, they pay you to come dig. But uh, anyway, um, not for nothing. Uh, I kid you not, five of the last seven years, ABR's most important discovery was found by a high school kid. Um, and it usually occurs the last day of the dig season. 
So Shiloh right now is a battleground. Uh, we'll talk about the significance of Shiloh in a second. But, but the short of it is back in 1981, an Israeli archaeologist by the name of Israel Finkelstein, and he's a minimalist, by the way. You know what a minimalist is? They don't believe you can trust the integrity of the Bible. They think the Bible is essentially a collection of historical myths. Some of it may be true, but a lot of it's not, a lot of it's exaggerations, and he's a minimalist. He produced, uh, he was there for four summers, and he concluded at the end of his four summers there that uh, there really is very little evidence of an Israelite presence during the middle to late Bronze Age. You say, what does that mean? I just want to think the book of Judges. He was basically saying, we don't find much of an Israelite presence whatsoever at Shiloh during the time of the book of Judges. The Bible's wrong. So he comes out and he makes this uh, prognostication after digging there from 1981 to 84. So my group has been trying to get into this spot for years because we know there's something true about this book, which is it's always true. So we knew that he clearly missed something, and we wanted to get there. Now, one thing, just a little background about ABR, is we have a funny reputation amongst the Israelis in the Antiquities Division. Um, we dug for 17 years at a place called Kerbet El Nisya. And uh, after the end of the 17 years, we produced this giant study we were convinced it was the city of Ai, mentioned in Joshua 7 and Joshua 8. And at the end of 17 years, you know what we found? There was no biblical significance whatsoever to the place we had just dug for the past 17 years. We were mortified, spent a lot of money, and at the end of the day, we proved nothing. We learned a lot about Israelite culture over the years, but there was never mentioned in the Bible. We were mortified. Do you know the Israelis loved it? They said, imagine that, an archaeological society that's honest. They said to us, next time you want to go dig somewhere, we'll get you your permit. Well, we had already started another dig at a place called Kerbet el Makater, And by the way, that is biblical eye. We proved it after digging there about 12 years. And uh, uh, we dug there for 17 years. And there's no doubt about that. Not only is it the city of Ai, but the city of Ephraim that's mentioned in uh, the Gospel of John, where the Lord spent the last three weeks before he goes into his triumphal entry, is right in that same spot. It's a fascinating place. But we were holding this ace up our sleeve because we wanted to get into Shiloh. The Israelis had not allowed anybody to dig there from 1984 on. They let one team come in for a brief summer in 1988, um, but really no one else they had allowed to dig there. So we said we're going to use our collateral on this. So we approached the Israelis said, we'd like to dig at Shiloh. 60 minutes later, we got our email approval. They remembered their commitment to us. And uh, so we wanted to get in there. Shiloh is in the West Bank, by the way. If you see Shiloh right there, due north of Jerusalem. And by the way, when you drive to Shiloh, you drive right past this thing called Ramallah. Ramallah is, for all intents and purposes, the capital of the Palestinian territories on the West Bank. And uh, um, it's interesting, when you go by Ramallah, uh, their wall, the security fence that the Israelis have built around uh, Ramallah, has got some interesting decorative elements on it. This is a, a woman who uh, went into an Israeli school with an AK-47 and shot the place up. The Israelis uh, 
do not look favorably upon her. She's celebrated by, by them. So this is a different part of the world. And you know that every day when you're driving on the bus and you're driving by this. Now, do you think ABR gets along with the Arabs? You bet we do. Think we get along with the Israelis? You bet we do. Uh, we want both of them. We want both of them to like us, and we want to do right by both of them. All we're trying to do is dig in, in Shiloh. And frankly, we, uh, the Arabs are terrific to us. They drive all our buses. They're the ones who feed us while we're out in the dig. Uh, and we want to have good relationships with them. And they take care of you. When you hire them, they take care of you. And they've been nothing but good to us out at, at Shiloh. And so too have the Israelis. Uh, we'll come back to that in a second. This is why Shiloh is so significant. Joshua 18, verse 1, The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. The country was brought under their control. Uh, we know that, according to Joshua, that it's at Shiloh where the tribes were divided up. The, the land allotments were divided up, uh, divided up. We also know that at Shiloh, what took place? This is the second most important place in the Old Testament because it's where the tabernacle stood for hundreds and hundreds of years, for, uh, for uh, more than 200 years. And uh, if this is where the tabernacle stood for several hundred years, for a few hundred years, and the tabernacle is the center of Israeli cultic life, and when I say cultic, what we mean in archaeological terms is a place where animals are sacrificed. If this is the center of Israeli cultic life, you ought to find lots of dead animals all over the place. And they ought to be clean animals according to the scripture, not unclean animals. And if this is the center of Israeli cultic life for nearly 300 years, you ought to find lots of artifacts that are distinctly Israeli, Israelite artifacts. So you can understand why the minimalists were trumpeting this as being an attack on the Bible, saying if none of these artifacts were found in this land, this territory. That's why we wanted to get in there. Now, understand why the city of Shiloh, or the location of Shiloh, was called as such. It all goes back to Genesis 49. Jacob is on his deathbed. And on his deathbed, he calls for each one of his sons to come before him, and he issues a series of benedictions and maledictions, blessings and cursings on the descendants of his sons. Interesting fella, interesting thing to do. But it also happens to be some of the most profound prophecy in all of Scripture. And this may be, along with Daniel 9, the most specific prophecy given in the Bible. Let's read it. Judah, this is again uh, Jacob talking about what's going to happen to a descendant or the descendants of Judah. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. That's the origin of the, the thought of the lion of the tribe of Judah is right here. It's because of these verses that the children of Israel understood that the Messiah must come from Judah. Look at what it says. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Uh, the term Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. We know from uh, Jewish rabbinical writings that the Jewish people considered this to be a prophecy that the Messiah... Shiloh is a name, a term, a moniker for the Messiah, 
that Shiloh would um, come from the tribe of Judah, that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. And what's more is it's telling you when he'll come. Do you see that? It's not readily apparent, but let me show you something. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And what the children of Israel thought, another way to render that is, once Shiloh has come, then the scepter will depart from, from, uh, from Judah. In other words, you'll know that Messiah is on the scene because the scepter has departed. The scepter is what a king would use, what a Mesopotamian king would use, a Middle Eastern king would use, as they were adjudicating capital offenses. Now, if I'm losing you through a whole bunch of terminology, let me put it in a little bit, I'm going to put it into Yonkers terms. I come from Yonkers. What this passage is saying is, look, the king gets the right of capital punishment. He gets to decide who's going to live and who dies when somebody's brought before him for, on a trial for their life. And we know from Middle Eastern culture that a king would have a scepter. It's a staff. It basically shows that they have the power over life or death. If the king was listening to a capital trial, and after listening to the capital trial, he decided to take the scepter and dip it towards the person whose life was on trial, was that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. If I dip the scepter towards you, I'm basically saying, I'm showing you favor, you're free to go. If I take the scepter and I pull it away, is that a good thing for you? Not so much. Off with their head. The children of Israel understood Genesis 49 to say that they would have the right of capital punishment over their citizenry until Messiah was on the scene. Then they would lose it. Let's park that to the side for a second. and We're going to come back to some very interesting things that occurred later in history. Let's talk about Shiloh and the dig. We think because they understood that Shiloh was a messianic name and they knew from their prophets. Uh, incidentally, there's indications they had a much better sense of what the Messiah was to be than we give them credit for. But they chose to use Shiloh as being the place where God would dwell among them. And it seems that at this point in history, they start to name this town Shiloh. Because that's where they were going to set up the tabernacle. We don't find any indication that this place was called Shiloh before the tabernacle was set up. But it was called Shiloh now because if the tabernacle is set up and you have the Shekinah glory of God dwelling in the tabernacle, he was going to be dwelling among them. Park that aside. Let's keep going. So here we are digging in Shiloh. Now, if you see somebody wearing a blue shirt, that means they're part of the staff. They're the ones we pay. They're the intelligent folks that are... Uh, supervising the dig. Now, make no mistake about it, this is not your grandpappy's archaeological dig. We rent time on a U.S. Air Force satellite to do images of this thing. We have drones flying overhead that have got thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of equipment as it's looking through the ground to tell us where we should dig. We sequence everything. We have images. We've got labs right on the dig site where testing is done. This is a full-fledged, elaborate, effort, and you want it to be that. See, back in 1981, Finkelstein didn't have the technology available to him that we do 40 years later. He didn't have the labs right on field, right on site that we do now. 
So here they are digging. And I can tell you this is first thing in the morning. Incidentally, if you ever want to go on an archaeological dig, hope you have insomnia. You know how the early these things start? You've got to be up and on the bus by 4 a.m. You get out to the dig site by 5 a.m. You want to start doing your, uh, your heavy digging by 6 a.m. All because of what? Because it's very hot in Israel. You want to get everything done and you want to be breaking the thing down by 2 o'clock because 2 o'clock is the height of the day there. So uh, here's a satellite image, and sorry, not a satellite, a drone image of uh, the areas we were digging in. Archaeological squares. goes back to uh, Ramsey, the, the father of modern archaeology. And there we are digging. Uh, incidentally, every single morning, drone flies over, and every afternoon a drone flies over, and it measures how much uh, digging has done and also keeps track of the walls. Uh, once you dig below seven feet, you've got to take the wall down that you're digging next to. Uh, the Israelis have their OSHA requirements. And you can't have a big wall next to you that could collapse at any second. So we've gotten dinged by the Israelis on a couple of occasions because my young college guys dig quicker than we, we, uh, we anticipated. But uh, anyway, it's, it's pretty safe. But um, as soon as you start your dig, you put these, uh, these tarps over, and they really do protect you from the sun. Uh, this is the team, by the way, the last week I was there. You've got about half the team in the picture. And uh, I think all told, we had 116 on the dig this week. And if you added it all up, it was north of 400, which made it the biggest dig in the world. Uh, there is the most attractive man again on the dig. Uh, this is Scott Stripling. He's the uh, lead archaeologist on the site. This is Tommy Chamberlain. Uh, he's on the board with me. Uh, Good chance if you watch the History Channel, he's on the History Channel about once a week because uh, the History Channel loves Bible archaeology uh, for some reason. Uh, and then again, there's another really attractive fella. Um, uh, these digs are, are something else. Do you know that every single piece of dirt, and I am not exaggerating, just about every piece of dirt gets viewed three times. Uh, we dig like crazy through these things, and I'm going to skip through here. Uh, now, i got to tell you, I'm chairman of the board of this thing, and I uh, never really had a desire to go to a place where I had to get up at 4 in the morning or be on a dig site before in the morning, but my niece wanted to go, so uh, I got roped into doing this thing, and it was, it was kind of neat. But my niece, and this is uh, if you, York Assembly, Chuck Anderson's one of the elders there. That's his daughter. Uh, so they talked me into going, so I went over there. Um, uh, this is a troll. You dig through uh, your dirt, and I'm going to skip through some of this. Uh, these are kufas, uh, and the dirt gets thrown into there. And uh, the artifacts uh, are pulled out, the ones you can readily identify, and then they go through dry sifting. And then Santa Claus dry sifts it for us. No, it's not really Santa Claus. Um, understand, each dig, you go through at the troll, and you're looking for things. You're looking for three things. You're looking for bones, you're looking for pottery, and any artifact that stands out. If you find those three things with your eyes, you take them and you put them in separate bags. Those bags are then sent down to the lab. The dirt, though, you put into these kufas, the thing I showed you before, or gufas is what they're called, these, these things, 
And after they've been inspected by eye, they go to the dry sifting station where the guy is going to shake it, and whatever is left out is going to be this band of rocks. He will then uh, look through it and see if anything jumps out at him. And uh, what's left over after it's gone through the dry sifting is sent down to these folks who do wet sifting. You tell me the Israelis are not interested in what's going on here. We approached the Israelis two years ago and said, we'd like to do wet sifting. Wet sifting is a fairly new technology where you spray everything down with water. It was started, invented about 10 years ago, really started being used on dig sites about five years ago. But even then, of the 100 digs that are going on in Israel, maybe four or five use it. We're one that tries to use it. So we had approached the Israelis. Shiloh is in the middle of the West Bank. It's next to an Israeli settlement, and there's no natural water lines around. We approached the Israelis and said, what would it cost and how, for us to get a permit to stick a, a, a trench line in from the closest kibbutz area so that we could get some of their water and, um, uh, and start to do wet sifting? We mentioned that to them in uh, January. We show up in April. The line was put in by the Israelis. We never saw a bill. They're interested in this. Why are they interested in Shiloh? because it shows their presence 3,000 years ago. Um, you know that we've been digging there for two years. We've not found hundreds. We've not found thousands. We have found tens of thousands of artifacts. We have found clean animals' bones all over the place. And we've found Israeli artifacts all over over the place. He was just digging in the wrong spot. And not only was he digging in the wrong spot, he didn't have the technology available to him. He wasn't dishonest. He, we figure, we went back through his debris fields that he had left, Israel Finkelstein. He didn't have the technology we did. The thing is filled with bones and artifacts that he just missed. We have found scarabs. Scarabs are Egyptian seals. This is one that was found by J.J. Routley, who uh, is a teacher at Emmaus Bible College. Uh, this scarab references Amenhotep II. It means the people that conquered this territory had come out from under the rulership of Amenhotep II. And in case you don't know what that means, that's okay. It's the pharaoh that's on the throne in Egypt in 1446 B.C. It matches up perfectly with your Bible. Uh, we keep finding his name on these scarabs. We haven't found a lot of these scarabs, but I think to date we found five this past summer. Here was the big thing we found, though. may not look like much to you, but an archaeologist recognizes this as a pomegranate. It's a pomegranate clay ceramic. Uh, the pomegranate shows up throughout Israeli worship. It shows up throughout the Pentateuch. Uh, the reason why the pomegranate is so significant in Israelite worship, it shows up in the tabernacle, it shows up in the, uh, the temple. Uh, you see the pomegranate mentioned as part of the embroidery, uh, part of the decorative elements that are at the bottom of the high priest's robe. The pomegranate, uh, according to uh, um, Israeli lore, has 613 seeds. An Israeli pomegranate has 613 seeds. Now let me tell you something. You pull out a pomegranate in Israel, and you start counting up the seeds, it might have 612, it might have 614, 
You know, so they don't exactly always have 600, but if you get enough of them, in general, they're going to have 613 seeds. The reason why it became such a significant symbol of Israelite worship in the Bible and in Israel is because in the Pentateuch, there are exactly 613 commandments given. There are 365, excuse me, 365 thou shalt not commandments, and there are 248 thou shalt commandments. So... Uh, because the pomegranate has 613 seeds, more or less, the Israelites began to adapt it as a symbol of the law. It's all over the place in ancient Israeli worship. You see it in other cultures too, but it really is an Israelite symbol. And that, we think, is part of the reason why God chooses for the pomegranate to decorate the temple, the tabernacle, and the high priest's robes, because it's in the Bible. Anyway, the fact that it is there, and the fact that it has Hebrew writing on it, Tells you what? The Jews were there. The Israelites were there. And your Bible is true. Real quick. We read this before. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. We said that another way to render that, the way the Israelis looked at it, was once Shiloh comes then the scepter and the giving of laws will depart from Judah. The scepter shows up in the book of Esther. Uh, Put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter. This is what I was sharing with you before, that the scepter was used in adjudicating capital offenses. This is actually the scepter of uh, Darius. His son Ahasuerus is the uh, one that's mentioned in the book of uh, Esther. Incidentally, you ever hear about the Spartans? You know, uh, what's the guy? uh, Leonidas, thank you. Leonidas, uh, the Spartans stopped the Persians at uh, Thermopylae. Is that what it is? That occurs between Esther 1 and Esther 2. Your Bible's a historical book, just so you know. but, But anyway, why is this significant? We know from Roman writings and we know from Jewish writings that the children of Israel, we know this from the things that show up in the book of Nehemiah, that the children of Israel seem to have never lost the right of capital punishment over their citizenry the entire time they're in bondage in Egypt. They can put their own citizens to death. The entire time they're in captivity in Babylon, they never lost the right of capital punishment over their own citizens. The entire time that they're oppressed by the Greeks, They never lost the right of capital punishment over their own citizens. You know who took it away? The Romans. The Romans did it in six, somewhere between six and seven AD, when a Roman governor by the name of Caponus removed their right of capital punishment. He said, your leadership is so corrupt, you no longer will be able to commit capital punishment over your citizens, which is one of the reasons why Uh, the Jews approached the Romans to put Christ to death. Legally, they can't. Now, does that stop them? Not really. They'll put an adulteress to death at the drop of a hat. But legally, they've lost the right of capital punishment about 6 or 7 AD. The reason I find that so interesting is if we're right that Christ was born somewhere between 6 and 4 BC, we know he has to be born somewhere around there because Herod is dead by around 2 BC, then that means the one public appearance that Christ makes as a little boy, how old is he? 12. When he's 12 years of age, he went into the temple, and he begins to uh, talk to the Jewish leaders. Remember, they're mesmerized by him? 
One reason he seems to make a public appearance when he's 12, standing up in front of this Jewish leadership, is, I believe, what has just happened. They've lost the right of capital punishment. And incidentally, let's see if I've got a quote from this. This is from the Babylonian Talmud. Copies we have go back to 100 AD. We think this was written at the time in the first decade but the Babylonian Talmud says this, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. What did they not know? There's a little carpenter's boy running around. He was there. He'd come on the scene. Anyway, just stuff for you to think about. We're out of time. We'll skip the video. Um, just want to leave you with two thoughts. One is your Bible is accurate, and you can trust that it is true. And as our technology gets better with archaeology, it bears these things out more and more and more. Who knows what we already have that's going to verify the trustworthiness of Scripture. And the other thing I want to leave you with is this. Isn't it great that we can say Shiloh has come already? The Lord Jesus Christ has come already. He has stepped into human history and he took on the form of, uh, of humanity, became one of us so that he could die and represent us on that cross. So that God could satisfy his righteous demands to punish sin and at the same time forgive us. It's the great problem of the ages. How can God remain just and still justify the wicked? The answer is Jesus Christ died in the place of the wicked. And by responding, by the wicked one responding in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I know you died on the cross in my stead and I want you to save me, uh, that wicked one can be forgiven. Us, me, I can be forgiven. You know what else? He's coming again. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer and thank you for your time and the extra five minutes. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that Shiloh has indeed come already. Father, we just uh, lift up to you this work, this fellowship here at Claremont, this light in a lost and dying world that is this world. Father, we pray that you would bless this assembly as they seek to be ready to give a defense and a reason for the hope that is within them, that as they uh, spread forth the gospel, as they share the gospel with little kids going up to Verdugo Pines, as they share the gospel with the Wana kids, as they share a gospel with, with the people in the street and people in the surrounding community, bless their efforts, Father. Their desire is to be, uh, be a witness for your son, knowing that he alone brings life to the lost. So, Father, bless them mightily in their efforts. Bless the eldership here. Bless the leadership here so that as they, uh, as they shepherd the flock, that this flock can not only be effective in bringing about the, the growth of the saints here, but they also, Father, might be effective in reaching this lost and dying world that is right around them. Lift these things up, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.